God, we feel your heart beat. We need your heart beat. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in. Here's to you, purveyor of all things postmodern. Purveyor of all things postmodern. With that obscure biblical reference for a church name. Welcome to Shabbat 213. Somehow the map had blown on top of the candles, and thank God we didn't set the whole place on fire. We had Fellini films being projected on the walls. I bought court jester hats, and during this really sincere worship, we went around and handed out cotton candy and um, popcorn to everybody. (laughs) And he tripped over something. So that was my claim to fame at one point. I almost killed Dave Crowder. You've got a Guinness in one hand, a pipe in the other, and you can see all the modern church's problems so clearly through those rose-colored diesel glasses of yours. Prevail of all things postmodern. They had a deep suspicion of hierarchy and institutionalism. If fear is the motivation behind not dealing with the sort of in the back of your mind questions, that to me is the worst kind of faith of all. It's it's yeah. despair. Welcome to Emerged, a story of young leaders who had audacious dreams, who became loyal friends, who achieved fame and influence, who burned brightly, but briefly. And now for the first time, many of the leaders reflect on their participation in the emerging church movement, and they consider the movement's legacy. Join us as we tell the tale of their successes and failures, the attacks they endured, the mistakes they made, what they left undone, and what they accomplished. Join us to hear the story of what emerged. And now, here are your hosts, Tony Jones and Trip Fuller, with producer Josh Gilbert. I want to find my way, find my way back home. I want to learn to love, and I want to be known. We're doing things a little differently in this episode. Before we get to our introduction with Josh and Tripp, we left last episode and there was an elephant in the room. And then one night, Mark and Grace and Lynette and I were out for dinner and had a lovely evening. And we were driving back to, he was driving, Mark was driving us back to our car. And I literally opened the door, had one foot on the curb and one foot in the car, and he leaned over. We have to deal with that elephant. I guess dispose of that elephant. The voice you're hearing is Dwight Friesen. Dwight is a professor at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Now, but at the time he was a church planter in Seattle, he had planted a church called Quest. And he and Mark Driscoll were talking about merging their churches into one church and co-pastoring that one church. So let's go back to this story that Dwight is telling about the night that the two couples went out for dinner. And he leaned over and he was like, so... Just so we can be clear on the role of women in ministry. And it's like, <laughs> it was like the, de- the deal was off. It's like, I all the, immediately I knew that uh, this, this partnership could go no further. That was the first sign that I had had that he was in a very different place theologically. After the big Glorietta conference in 1998, while Doug was still at Leadership Network, a group of us planned what we called the regional forums. And there were several all around the country. And there was one that took place in Seattle that was hosted by Mark Driscoll. It was at Seattle Pacific University. And something happened at that regional forum in Seattle that led to the end of the relational connection between Mark Driscoll and the rest of us who went on to found Emergent Village and be part of the Emerging Church movement. Dwight Friesen was in the room when it happened. 
I went to a, a, a session. I'm pretty sure Mark was leading it, but he was in the room, and this is when he kind of blew up. And I just remember here we'd been having all these generous conversations at all of the events leading up to this, and this one for sure. And there was a spaciousness, an ironic quality to the way people were connecting. They were sharing resources. There was a generosity. It was ecumenical. Like, there were fo folks from all kinds of different Christian traditions, and, and yet we were finding a way to connect with each other and learn from each other, and it was beautiful. And then I think it was a woman who challenged something that Mark was saying. And he just erupted. I just remember, I was sitting probably six or eight feet away from him. And he was, he got right in the person's face and was like pointing his finger and screaming at the person. And it just, all of a sudden, it put this giant question mark in the room. Like, what are we doing? I thought this was a conversational space that invited us to, um, to wonder and to imagine, like, what if we operationalize the way of Christ in a, in a more generative way with one another? And this felt very different. The whole event pivoted, I would say, from then on. Like, I mean, not everybody was in the room, but the ripple effects of that, of, of that explosion raised a question as to what is this thing about? I just remember the feeling afterward. And there was just this sense of shock and like, what happened? And it was this profound sense that that kind of conversation did not belong, that it didn't fit here, it was out of place. Dwight wasn't the only person who felt that Mark Driscoll did not belong. And I think even Mark Driscoll felt that. It was shortly thereafter, probably sometime in the year 2000, on a phone call that included several people, Mark went his own separate way from the rest of us. Focused his time and energy, not only in his own church, obviously, but also in the Acts 29 network, as opposed to what became the network of Emergent Village. So, my friends, that is the last time you're going to hear about Mark Driscoll on this podcast. On with the show. There are two parts of the shift out of Leadership Network. One is a shift from a community of practitioners and leaders to a community that now has some definition that are getting amplified, wrestling with what it means to be a brand, experimenting with style in a larger evangelical kind of church marketplace. And all of a sudden, this group of friends that are practitioners sharing junk in more private, intimate spaces get handed a microphone when thousands of ministers get together and when thousands of youth ministers get together. But by prayer and petition, with a heart of thanksgiving, present your request to God. Present your request to God. I will say that in 2000, where this episode begins, we had no idea. We had no idea anything that was going to happen in the next five years. We got cut loose by Leadership Network. And then I fly to Maryland and sleep on Brian McLaren's couch for a week with a few other people. And we try to figure out, are we going to form a nonprofit? Are we going to file for 501c3 status and start taking donations? Like, who are we and what are we going to do? It didn't feel like the evangelical church was handing us the microphone and saying, we really care about what you have to say. It more felt like we were scratching and clawing to figure out who we were and what was the next step. Around my time, when I first heard about the emergent movement, this is like 2008. So this is, you know, we're, we're definitely years before that, but I'm going to local bookstores and I'm seeing there's like a progressive section. I don't think it's called that, but there's like those books, maybe Brian McLaren. There's, I'm starting to, it's big enough that it's entering my evangelical upbringing. It's big enough to be like a threat and I'm starting to hear about it. After Glorietta, there's obviously a buzz. There's 450 people there. Mm -hmm. yep. But it then, in this episode, we'll see it grow to be much bigger and to- 10 times that, yeah. Right. right. I mean, there, little things happen that you'll hear about in this episode 
But other things happen that we'll talk about in future episodes, like theological conversations that a couple hundred people would go to and spend three days with, you know, premier global, globally renowned theologian. We had a lot of meetings and gatherings, like Asbury Seminary brought us in for a thing we called WALP, the Worship and Arts and Liturgy Project, WALP. WALP. And we... (laughs) And that was like put on by Asbury Seminary, but it was all emergent people who were all the speakers and the conference leaders and everything. Look, nobody in 99 or 2000 was putting us on the main stage in front of 5,000 youth pastors. But by 2005, 2006, yes, we were like in the mix of that kind of thing. Who I was and what I had to believe. I think one of the things that I've long thought about the emergent movement is that there were really two streams. There was the stream of people who wanted to change the way that church was done in the evangelical world. And then there was a stream of people who were brought into this because they were really interested in the ideas of the philosophy and the theology. I'm definitely of the latter stream because I came from a more mainline context. I got turned on to postmodernism in seminary. I think like the poster child for the first stream was Dan Kimball, who really was doing like very radical things uh, out of the church, church within a church model that he was working on and ended up writing multiple books, including books with emerging church in the title. And I would say in this era of 2000 to 2005, those two streams still got along really well. And, And especially at the conventions. And one interesting thing about this episode we're not really going to talk about who was up on stage giving the talkity talkity talk talks at those three conventions. We're going to talk about like the vibe and the aesthetic because I think it's really interesting the vibe and the aesthetic that was so un pastors convention like. Uh, and I still go to pastors conventions, and there's still nothing like those three emerging conventions. Nothing like them. Today is a brand new day. I'll start again. One of the themes that runs throughout uh, this episode are the different situations that kind of forced upon this group of friends as attention and energy uh, is moving their way to draw boundaries. The, The story Dwight tells at the very beginning. I think is really important, right? With that, that conflict, he says that didn't belong here. And that is an expression of patriarchy where women aren't full participants and leaders, right? We're just a year away, the, the launching of the emerging leader, uh, women's leadership group, which takes an ongoing role and in increased leadership and such. And that boundary marker of belonging, but it's a belonging where all voices, experiences are celebrated, uh, really shifted it. Th- there's also a boundary that theological questions matter and how you respond to them makes a difference. You'll hear Brian voice it, but that's something that came to shape the DNA of the larger emerging church movement. Aesthetics became a boundary marker, not because the aesthetics of what's happening, how art and spirituality and participation, all these things are getting used, but aesthetics is actually embodying a different way to think theologically about what it means to follow after Christ or to be a Christian or to talk about God and the divine in a different context. How you arrange the room matters what pictures and images are being used. The aesthetics for some is a means to the same end. And for others, it's figuring out uh, how to do theology when the sufficiency of language and the supremacy of the ordained authoritative clergy is out the door. What happens when the task of honoring the tradition is something we all discover together as we live together? Then you ask to fly your your local street artist to a pastor's convention. (laughs) One of the things Chris names that became increasingly uncomfortable for the people that in this period are platforming so many emerging church voices is... It is Chris says, yeah, the fundamentalists kept treating the Bible like 
they treat their wife, coming up with new words to make sure uh, if you're insecure about how much you love her, you give her a new superlative. (laughs) And so it's the holy and errant infallible word of God. And Chris kind of named at that Bible and postmodern culture event a new orientation to how one relates to the text. For some, that new orientation was actually a way the text became sacred again. Okay, fellas, you may remember that Doug Padgett was hired by Brad Smith at Leadership Network in 1997. By the middle of 1999, Doug had departed Leadership Network and moved back to Minneapolis to start the planning for the faith community that would become Solomon's Porch. So I asked Brad Smith to go back in time to to 1999 and what led up to Doug leaving and ultimately to the rest of us leaving Leadership Network. The role of a staff person at Leadership Network is to be behind the scenes and support. We, quote unquote, control what's happening by who we put on stage and who we don't put on stage. That is not Doug. And I don't know that I understood that when we hired him. Doug is wants to be on stage and should be on stage. That's his gift. And so that created some tension inside of Leadership Network. I've been challenged and perhaps I didn't put enough control on that. It was more that he had a more of a strident tone. That did create some relational issues inside of Leadership Network. As I got to know Doug and came to love him, it helped me to explain to people, this is who Doug is, and there's some value in that, and there's some some really important reasons why perhaps he's going to be very important to this network. Often, when he would do things that would offend people, there's a part of that that I recognize that's who God made him. He's probably not taking himself quite as seriously as people think he is, right? And there's an entertainment moment there that he understands and gets, and he does. I got a lot more complaints about Doug than I ever got about Mark Driscoll. Okay, that is really the last time you're going to hear the name Mark Driscoll on this podcast. I think what happened with Doug is he kind of looked around and realized, I think I would like to church plant. We get that. And so he was not forced out, for sure. But he also recognized, I think we all recognized this was not his dream job. And it was time for him to move on. And and, uh, we got that. It was mutual, not in a negative way, but mutual. We go, yeah, there probably is a need for somebody else. And there's probably need for you to do something else only because that's your calling and your giftedness. I asked Doug Padgett to reflect on the end of his time at Leadership Network as well. It became apparent to me that Leadership Network was less interested in the direction we were going. Early on, the idea was, go find creative innovators, don't have an agenda. This was Bob Buford's kind of take and say, this is how the church ought to be. Bring together church leaders, find out from best practice practitioners what they're doing, and then amplify that. But don't don't flavor it. The story of the organization was that's what we do. All of us on the inside, like anybody in any organization, know, well, the people you invite and the topics you pick, and that, that does flavor it. But it became pretty clear that a number of us had an other project that was more interesting. What was the influence of postmodern culture on society? I did want to organize people and did want to bring people together, but I wanted to do that as a co-participant in that project and not just as a convener. Just as a reminder, Leadership Network was a foundation based in Dallas that served pastors and church leaders by bringing them together to learn, you know, the tricks of the trade from each other, what was working and what wasn't working. And it was under their auspices that Young Leaders Network was founded, founded by Brad Smith and then directed by Doug Padgett. And then Doug left 
Leadership Network in 1999 and moved back to Minnesota to plant Solomon's Porch. And shortly thereafter, the relationship between all the rest of us who had gathered under the Young Leaders Network and Leadership Network ended as well. So I asked Brad Smith, who was the president of Leadership Network at the time, his memories of how that relationship ended. We very carefully did not name it anything interesting, okay? And the reason is we felt like if you brand it, it's going to have commercialization. It Rather than just this free listening, exploring, you're going to start having people trying to publish stuff and write stuff and then compete with each other. So every time something came up, it was, no, let's call it Young Leaders. That's a really boring title. Uh, Brian McLaren came up with Terra Nova. I thought, that's cool. Um, and so for a long time, that was kind of the brand. But by that time, it already had brand, it had momentum, people writing books about it. And I think uh, Leadership Network felt like it could, it could spin off without being lost. So most of the reason was about transitions inside of Leadership Network, including me leaving. I didn't hear hardly anything about theology. That wasn't really the reason from my, from my viewpoint. Bob Buford was there and he asked if he could meet with me and he'd sat in on one or two of the talks that I gave at that large conference. That's Brian McLaren. You may remember him from the last episode and you're probably familiar with Brian and his books and his speaking. Brian told me about a conversation he had with Bob Buford who founded and funded Leadership Network. So was, I guess, in essence, Brad Smith's boss, the one who held the purse strings of Leadership Network. Brian was speaking at a big conference called Off the Map, and he ended up sitting down with Bob Buford at that conference. I don't think I'd ever met Bob Buford before, but we met for breakfast and, you know, I I liked him. He was a quirky guy, obviously a very generous guy, but uh, we're sitting at breakfast and he said, you guys keep talking about theology. I said, yeah, it's really, really important to what we're about. And he said, we don't do theology. I said, well, I think that's impossible, but if what you're saying is you don't want to be involved in theological conversations you know, that's certainly not where I'm going. I think our deepest problems are theological, not just methodological. And he just gave me this look, and he, I, I wish I could remember his exact words, but he said something like, you make no sense to me. <laughs> like, that, not too many times somebody says that to your face, but he's sort of it's like, yeah, you make no sense to me. And I remember thinking, oh boy, I hope I didn't just blow it for uh, Young Leader Networks, as it was called, but... And I think it was shortly after that that they cut the funding. There was one final meeting in Chicago that I think finally severed the ties between, I guess we were calling ourselves the group of 20 at the time, or maybe the Terra Nova Theology Project. These were a couple of names we were kind of bouncing around. Then there was a meeting at my cabin in 2000 where we kind of dreamed up the idea of Emergent Village. This was pre-Emergent Village, but maybe came up with that idea. We were though, to coin a phrase, wandering in the desert, kind of trying to figure out who we were post-Leadership Network. And I think one of the things that really gave us an identity was a conference on the Bible and preaching in a postmodern society hosted by Chris C. at Ecclesia Church in Houston. The church wasn't even done being built yet, uh, but he nevertheless hosted that conference. And it was our first real gathering, our first real event after Leadership Network without their support and help. And Brian McLaren was there. This is what he remembers of that conference. One of the conferences that had a huge impact on me, I helped plan, was 
the the one on the Bible. I forget what we called it in in uh, Houston. But one of our speakers was a Congolese theologian named Mabiala Kenzo. There was something that happened at that weekend that I will never forget. Um, Kenzo and I were sitting in the backseat of a car going, I think, from a meeting to a meal or a meal to a meeting. And Kenzo is, is a brilliant uh, theologian, uh, you know, multilingual, like so many of just that the African intelligentsia that they, they've had to work 10 times harder than anybody else. And his brilliance is just staggering and insight is so profound. And he was talking a lot about the relationship between the African church and the colonial churches. And I had been doing a talk that had I'd been sort of field testing a little statement. And I said to him in the back of the seat, I said, Kenzo, would you say that postmodern is postcolonial? And he, yes, yes, that's it. And it's like, it took our sort of friendship and conversations to a new level. Uh, I mean, that's the most obvious statement now, but it was something that, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, in 1995 or 1998. So that was a powerful moment. And here's Chris C., who hosted that conference and is the pastor and founder of Ecclesia Church in Houston. And to have all these people come from across the globe to talk about the Bible, there were amazing presentations there. And remember, like that was the one that Rob Bell showed up at, and we didn't we didn't really know Rob Bell. And Rob Bell kept going like, "I want to talk," you know. And we're like, "Well, we don't have you down." He's like, "But I'm Rob Bell. I want to talk." You're like. All right, well, we'll give you five minutes. And like, okay, that was pretty good. Can I have another 15? Like, all right, you got 15. And he did that prayer shawl thing that, you know, I'm sure he learned it from some Jewish brother somewhere, but it was great. And, uh, and we loved it. And I left, I remember, I vividly remember having this thought that like, one of the things that's kind of weird or flawed about fundamentalists is they have this feeling like, they're so proud of how much they love the Bible. It's like, I love my wife more than you love your wife or something. It's so we got to come up with a better word. It's not, it's infallibly, you know, inerrant, whatever. And I just left going like, I just love the, the way that we talked about the Bible at that event. Like it wasn't with their words, like they wouldn't have loved it, but I, I loved it. Like we see the Bible for what it is in a way that makes it really edifying for people to read it. And it, builds people up and makes the world better. And I don't know, I left that event. And that's part of why then I dove in and spent the next 10 years doing the voice translation, because that event inspired me so much. And I just realized like most people don't know the Bible's a library and the literary styles when they're translated are so poorly done. And that was where I was like, I got to do that because it felt really good to be with our tribe talking about that. One thing I will never forget about that conference in Houston on the Bible is that I met Michael Toy. I remember sitting on the edge of the stage and seeing uh, a seminary friend of mine, Dave Madalena, who was Michael's pastor at the time, walking down the aisle toward me. I hadn't seen Dave since we graduated from seminary. And beside him was a guy who would become very important to me, a great friend, and very important to the emerging church movement. But at the time was just a lay person at a church trying to figure out a new way to read the Bible. Michael Toy. I went to the Bible and Postmodern Society conference in Houston to on purpose listen to voices that were coming at the Bible differently than I had been trained to come to the Bible. So it was kind of a risk, but I thought, you know, I'll go listen to these people and if they are really heretics, then then that will be clear because I have the Holy Spirit with me and I have discernment. And if they aren't, then maybe there'll be some answers. What happened there was I met people who were struggling with the same questions that, that I was struggling with and I no longer felt like I was kind of crazy, especially in the sort of evangelical tradition that I was in. The words around how you should think about the Bible were very narrowing. There's certain questions you don't ask. They were asked a long time ago by people who were wrong and you shouldn't even ask why that was. It was kind of, you know, the sort of the meta story. So just stay in the lane, ask these questions and, and you'll be okay. 
But as a person in the modern world trying to both be a faithful Christian and walk around like not a crazy person, it just seemed impossible to not ask some of those questions. At the Bible Postmodern Society Conference, I met a bunch of people who not only were asking the same questions, but were really happy to see me because, like me, they were happy that they weren't alone. And so you learned each other's names because you knew that you were going to run into each other again and that maybe nobody back home would understand what was bothering you, uh, but this person would because this person also came to this stupid thing that you came to that you have no business going to. It's sort of being invited into a, a people who wandered together, lost, uh, only not really lost because uh, all of us felt like, you know, there's a clear calling. There's, there's a thing out there that we don't know quite what it is, but we kind of know that it's out there, it's calling us, and, and we, we need to find it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from Mark Ostreicher and others who were involved in the emergent conventions, and prior to that, the publishing agreements we had. But before that, don't like ads? Don't want to listen to ads? You can opt out of ads by joining the Emerged Podcast Partners. For as little as 10 bucks. you will get access not only to ad-free episodes, but also to all sorts of other bonus material, unedited interviews, members-only live streams, and even a mug that says, I have emerged, a coffee mug. You want that. So if you don't want these ads while they're playing, jump on over to emergedpodcast.com and join us as a member. friends if you if you want to hang out with us then consider coming to theology beer camp this october in denver colorado you'll not just get to hang out with us there'll be 20 or so different podcasts there'll be 20 or so different scholars theologians biblical scholars and such and there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people who like asking big questions and aren't sure where how together to do it if you want to be a part of that come taste the fun and delicious craft beverages come to camp theologybeer.camp. Check it out, and we'll see you there. In The God of Wild Places, Tony Jones opens up for the first time about what pushed him out of the church and into the woods. And he explores the spiritual insights he's gained in wild places, about place and peace, about risk and failure, about predators and death. Brian McLaren says, I love this book. I love its honesty, its tenderness, its craft, its settings, its quests and questions, and the profound mysteries toward which it bows. It takes you places you need to go. The God of Wild Places by Tony Jones is available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Emerged, an oral history of the emerging church movement. Mark Ostreicher was an associate pastor and youth worker at a big church in Pasadena, California, when he attended some of the pre-emergent events that you've heard about in earlier episodes, those at Glen Erie and Mount Hermon. And by the time he went to the Glorietta Conference in 1998, he had joined the staff of Youth Specialties a company founded by Mike Iaconelli and Wayne Rice that was meant to serve youth pastors around the country. It had grown phenomenally in the years since its founding and was really a major player, the major player in youth ministry in the United States by the turn of the millennium. Marco, as he is commonly known, became the publisher at Youth Specialties and not long after we had moved out from under the Leadership Network umbrella, we started having conversations with Marco about what a publishing partnership might look like. It was at that time that he took that idea to the team at Youth Specialties. 
I brought this proposal to our leadership team at Youth Specialties, and there was resistance all around the table. And I remember Yacanelli saying something like, our mission is youth ministry. I'm not sure why we would do this. And I said something like, Mike, at the core of youth specialties and your impact on the world is always that you have wanted to serve places that are instigating change. And that's what this opportunity is. And he got this big smile on his face and suddenly said, we're in. I think at that point, Tick Long was actually still opposed to the idea, but he went along with it and got up to speed and everybody else was all in. Because when Yacanelli, I mean, Yacanelli was the heart of that company at that time. And so when he, when he smiled and said, we're in, we were in. You specialties have been in a publishing partnership with Zondervan for 30 years. They printed our books and warehoused them and took them to bookstores. And it was a positive relationship. So we went to them with our intention to develop this Emergent YS publishing line. I'm still friends with people at Zondervan, so I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but people who were not who are not still there gave us a very patronizing pat on the back and literally said, this was the words, you guys need to stay in your lane. We're the people who know church leader books, and that's not your skill set. Well, you specialties, it was a risk-taking organization, like you said, and we also had a kind of a smart-ass, even juvenile approach to things, and we didn't like being told, stay in your lane. So I ended up having uh, phone and in-person meetings with probably five or six different publishers. I remember flying up to San Francisco and meeting with Josie Bass and several others. I remember some major publisher just not getting it at all, but in the end, Nav Press said that they wanted to do it. And we signed a deal with them to be publishing partners uh, because we needed somebody to carry some of that operational side. Our first book out of the shoot was Dave Tomlinson's The Post-Evangelical, and we were doing an updated North American version We got it all the way to print-ready files. It was edited, it was designed, it was ready to go. And in an action that had never happened before, the head of the Navigators, which is the fairly silent parent organization of NavPress, read it and said, we are canceling this agreement. We're not going to do any of this, which, you know, they were breaking a legal contract. And so we started talking to other publishers again in a bit of a panic. I, I didn't even think of going back to Zondervan, but they came back to us and said, we were wrong. We can see that you do know what you're doing in this area. Let's do it together. And that's where that publishing line uh, kind of got rolling. There were definitely some key moments in the development of the publishing line. Certainly, Brian McLaren's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, was one of the real key books and certainly one of the books that sold the most. Boy, that book was hard and wonderful, but it was from a development perspective, Brian had this idea. I loved the idea. Zondervan loved the idea. We developed it. I functioned as the uh, developmental editor on it. So I read through the manuscript in three versions and, you know, spent hours giving him feedback and he would rewrite. And we finally got to the point where we were ready for the editorial process and Zondervan had an internal kind of theological gatekeeper do what they call a theological read. It's an actual term in that world. You remember this story, I'm sure. And that guy wrote a 
scathing critique that was meant as an internal document. It was not meant to be given to Brian. And another guy in the editorial team accidentally sent it to Brian. And it was mean. It just was the worst case scenario. And we were at the first emergent convention at the town and country and had to have a meeting with Brian and the guy who wrote the critique and the developmental editor from Zondervan. And for some reason, a senior guy from Christianity Today magazine was in the room, which just was annoying. And it was hard because Brian was hurt, understandably. And he was thinking about pulling out and Somehow, luck or grace of God or whatever, we ended up seeing a way through that. uh, And that became a really critical book in the line. The publishing line with Youth Specialties was going great. But what Youth Specialties was known for as much as publishing books was their incredible youth ministry conventions. And they had also started a pastor's convention And we came along and said, how about we do an emergent convention? So we had talked about starting a convention and, you know, that was, you specialties knew how to run conventions. For those listeners who don't know, we, the National Youth Workers Convention in those days was in three or four cities every fall and had 3,000 to 6,000 people at each site. So we knew the operations and logistics of running something like that. And we had a lot of relationships with good speakers that we could bring in. But we also didn't know how to pull off the emergent convention without it being too big of a financial risk. And it was tick long than the president of events for you specialties who had this idea of running it concurrently with the National Pastors Convention at the town and country, which had a second ballroom that seated, I think, about 800 people. It provided us with a whole bunch of opportunities because we were able to, you know, put the cost of a lot of stuff on the National Pastors Convention, including, I don't remember if it was the first year, but in some of those early years, getting some speakers that were way out of our price range to get, like Anne Lamott, and Kathleen Norris, we could have never afforded them. But being able to kind of share that uh, made it more possible. I particularly remember maybe one of the best things we did was when we had these evening worship services, I think there were four of them. One was run by Pete Rollins and his church community. And one was uh, like a Taze service. And the others were two very different styles. And people had to choose which one they would go to, which ticked people off because they wanted to go to all of them. But even the fact that we forced people to choose and not go to everything just felt like it really worked. And those were organic and not something we controlled at all, not something we planned. Um, And... That just seemed like it was really serving the diversity of what was happening rather than imposing our expectations on what it should be and not just going with the traditional speaker on a stage. We could now go on and catalog all the people who got up on stage and gave talks at those emergent conventions in 2003, 2004, and 2005. But we've already done a lot of talking about talking. What was really special about those conventions, in addition to the content coming from the stage, was the vibe. The aesthetic. And nobody was more responsible for the vibe and the aesthetic at those conferences than Mark Scandrett. Mark is an artist and an esthete and a missionary and a pastor and a creative from San Francisco who was brought down to San Diego in 2003 to set the tone and the vibe for the first emergent YS convention. 
But before we get to that convention in 2003, let's hear a little bit from Mark about his journey to that point. In 1997, I was a associate pastor at a Baptist church in Northern Minnesota. And I was in seminary at the time and I was working with young people and they were telling me they just didn't connect with our church. Like they would clue me into their music and like pop culture references. And uh, I just shut down the youth program because they just weren't interested. And I just said, come to my house on Sunday nights and we'll, I'll build a fire in my backyard and we'll, we'll just have a rap session. And I'd maybe have my guitar there and we'd sing a little bit and we'd talk. And it started out with like eight kids and it grew to like 50. And they'd start bringing their friends. And I didn't do any teaching. It was just a dialogue. I'd say, you guys, you're the body together. You need to encourage each other and care for, love one another And so it was definitely about participation. I got an invitation from Leadership Network. I don't even know how they found me or they just had really good mailing lists. This is an invite-only event in California uh, called Gen X 2.0. Ministry is different for this younger generation, and we are inviting you to come have a conversation about it. And it just, I was like, wow. I I mean, I'm sure I was just on a mailing list, but I felt special. There's about 450 of us in this room, and if a bomb had gone off in that room, there'd be no emerging church, and there'd be no <laughs> rise and fall of Mars Hill. Like, like a lot of people who went on to do their good work in the world or, or their work in the world were in that room asking questions and struggling. And I remember it was the first time I'd been somewhere where we could be honest about things. And one guy during Tim Selleck's talk just stood up and said, said something to that effect. I don't give a fuck about making money at this or how I, you know, get donors. I just want to know how do I, how do I follow Jesus? You know, how do I love my neighbor as myself? And there was just this real fervor and I don't know, you know, something cathartic to tell the truth for the first time. As Mark said, he was, you know, a youth pastor from Northern Minnesota who moved to San Francisco and that San Francisco vibe rubbed off on him. He absorbed it. He he wasn't just going to pastor's conventions during these times. He was also living a San Francisco life learning a San Francisco life. I was finding some surprising resonances in those spaces. I'd go to poetry slams and be like, people are talking, they're being really honest about their lives and they're talking about the ultimate questions. And um, that was showing up in the murals that were being painted on, you know, in my neighborhood. So when we started doing those conferences, uh, one of the things we want, we, we, we really knew that aesthetics were important and we're in a hotel in San Diego, the town and country. It's very sterile. And we're like, what can we do to bring some of that urban artistic flavor? And so I can't believe they, they let us do this, you know, thanks to these specialties and their their budget at the time. But I got to hire artists from San Francisco, from a collective in San Francisco to come create installation spaces. We really wanted to subvert yeah, expectations. So my my favorite memory is at the time, Emergent had this reputation of being sort of somber, like dark rooms and candles and um, thanks to people like Tony Jones, like icons and, you know, Lectio Divina and stuff like that. And um, we kind of wanted to mess with the people who were coming to the uh, event. And so we called the first, I think the, the theme I came up with was Global Earth Circus Revolution. <laughs> so we had, we had Fellini films being projected on the walls. We, I bought like um, court jester hats for everyone. I tried to get, I tried to get Dallas Willard to wear a court jester hat on the stage, 
and uh, he just wouldn't wasn't going for it. But the, <laughs> we thought, wow, people come to these conferences, and it's like it's like junk food. Like they want that big hit, and then they go home. So we're gonna play with that and make fun a little bit. So we got popcorn machines and cotton candy machines. And during this really sincere worship, we went around and handed out cotton candy and uh, popcorn to everybody. <laughs> hey, you're treating this like entertainment, so have you know have your popcorn while you're doing it. One of my other favorite parts was I got to write a poem for every session. And I would never do this now, maybe, but I literally wrote them like 15 minutes before. I'd scribble out and get up there and just go for it on the stage. And even that prayer, that heartbeat prayer, that was kind of on the fly, you know? Yeah. God, we feel your heartbeat. We need your heartbeat. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, a funny thing about that is uh, for years after, Marco has a story about going to a wedding and the bride and groom beat their chests and did that prayer. <laughs> but I think, you know, talking about it now, we needed a refresh. Like in the arts, brought they, they brought something that helped us reconnect. Like you mentioned that, that Eucharist we did and it was like it, you know. At the t- I was I was loving at that period doing creative Eucharist experiences, and so taking the body and blood, but having chocolate and dates and real wine. People were weeping all over the room, like this this ritual that had become very stale suddenly was infused with meaning again um, for people. And I I just did a retreat last year where I did. I did a Eucharist like that. That was a feast with bread and cheese and and wine, and it, it had the same effect. Uh, people getting up and sharing what the community meant to them. That's what aesthetics can do, you know. The compliment to Mark Scandrett's edgy San Francisco vibe at the Emergent Convention was a preppy youth pastor from Cincinnati, Ohio named Lily Lewin. I almost burned down the whole um, place because I had a sacred space on the left of the stage and I'd never done a sacred space on the road before. So I sent a, here's a list of the things I need you to buy versus me bringing them. And Shelly had gotten somebody from YS to go to Costco and buy the stuff. And so didn't know the difference between a tea light and a, you know, a votive. And so the tea lights didn't have a glass over the top. So I'm on one side of the room of the convention of the ballroom, far side, and I smell smoke. And I run over to the space and a map had blown because I had a place to pray for your enemies. And I had and the, a map had blown over on top of the candles. And it was just a miracle of God that it didn't set off all the sprinklers because Mark Scandrett got shut down because his stuff wasn't um, fireproof. We're going to let Lily step back in time as well, because she was at the Bible conference in Houston at Ecclesia Church. So listen carefully to what she says here. It was called Teaching the Bible in a Postmodern Context. And it was at Chris C's church in Houston. And when he wasn't allowed to use the building, but we used it anyway. Do you remember that? And you and I, went. we went out to dinner. You and me and Doug and a few other thousand other people because it's Doug. I met Marco then as well. And I think it was Paget that invited me. He heard that I did all this creative worship stuff. And I think he was the one that invited me to do the sacred space. I don't, I think Doug must have been the person who, so he, he got me together with Scandrette and said, you guys need to do the atmosphere architecture for this gig. That's how it worked in those days. Doug met Lily at a conference and a year later, Lily was in charge of the sacred space at a huge convention. They hadn't worked together before. They hadn't even met prior to the conference in Houston, but Doug saw something. There was energy and a connection was made. And Lily was invited to come in and 
play this important role at this emerging convention. It just, in those days, it was just like that over and over and over again, where special spiritual connections were made and people came into the group and made amazing things happen. Their, their creativity was tapped and it was valued. And Skandrat and I, at that point, were like, so, you know, let's put two, let's put the preppy people with the very San Francisco people. And how is that? And, you know, out of all the people, we're still great friends, Lisa and Mark. And I mean, we're all really great friends. So I remember this great conversation that he and I had, like, he was drinking wine. I think I might've been drinking wine too, but this is way before Zoom. You know, this, we couldn't talk, you couldn't see each other. So we're planning all this crazy stuff for that event. So we did the atmosphere architecture. It was basically a journey through Luke. And it started out with the uh, wash your hands in a, in a bowl of sand to, as an act of confession. And then you wash your hands in water to symbolize your baptism because it's John the Baptist, you know. And then there's honey to taste as t- to remind you you're forgiven. And Rob told this story that I now tell in workshops that, so the guy I was telling you about who ordered the stuff from Costco got the honey that was in, you know, the jar that was this huge. And so the bowl of honey, instead of like a little tiny taste bowl, was this huge bowl. So people have been going through there and doing, you know, doing it and tasting with a little finger. Well, the last day of the of the whole thing, this family went through with a, like a five-year-old or something, and he stuck his entire hand into the bowl of, of honey and went, like that, licked his hand both sides. And Rob goes, you did it exactly right. That's how much you're forgiven. That's how much Jesus loves you is your entire hand for of honey, not just the fingertip. And I remember that there was something that Crowder was, Crowder was going to lead worship, singing worship, and he tripped over something. So that was my claim to fame at one point. I almost killed Dave Crowder. And I remember the acrobats maybe on stilts. That was, that was Mark <laughs> Skandrath. <laughs> and I just remember being with my people. You know, that was like, okay, I feel like I'm with the people that I'm supposed to be with. And you definitely, ultimately, knew the difference between the emergent crew and the pa- the national pastor's crew down the hall. My brother had this RV out on, that was out on my parents' farm, um, and Michael Toy could drive an RV. So I don't know how Michael and I had gotten together, but for that event, uh, we drove an RV from my parents' house out in Brentwood into Nash- downtown Nashville and drove it into the actual convention center and then we I used my car it was a little RAV4 and then I borrowed my brother's van uh he had a minivan so I borrowed and so we just kind of used that as the decor (laughs) for the big huge space with a lot of lights you know like twinkle lights and rope lighting and suitcases and things and then Mark Skendrat's idea that year was to let's do a a bike labyrinth so a bicycle labyrinth so and my dad was in construction business so went and borrowed a bunch of cones and signs like that and so we created this bike labyrinth behind the RV so people rode their bikes around like different things during the during the the gathering speaking time and then he had Skendrat had a Another set of prayer stations on the other side, like one included body bags and one included one station had to do with earwax. Those are the two I remember. <laughs> anyway. So Q-tips and earwax and body bags. Um, I can't remember what they went, meant, but that's, <laughs> that's what I remember about that, that prayer station. On, that was on one side. And then I have a lot of great pictures of people sitting up on top of the RV, everybody from Dave Tomlinson to Dan Kimball in the door looking kind of like Elvis and... Um, Johnny Baker, Johnny Baker was up on the roof. It's really hard to top a bike labyrinth with Mark Scandrett. Uh, but w- when I interviewed Mike Clausen, who recently did his PhD in American church history on the emerging church movement, he picked up that image of a labyrinth to think about this movement. And in particular, the transition that we're capturing right here at what happened when all these friendships, relationships, and this energy coalesced uh, in a moment to something that does, does needed a name, uh, the emerging church movement. Uh, Mike, hey, Josh, come on, play that clip. I know they'll hear more later, but just play the clip now. It's, it's a spiritual pilgrimage into kind of the heart or the soul. And you start on the exterior of things. And then you move into this deeper interior place. And then you move from there back out 
back out to the world, but transformed. And that's kind of what happened with the emerging church movement is you, they start with these kind of exterior forms. We're going to, you know, do generational ministry. We're going to rethink our, our practices and the way we do these things so we can attract younger people. And that's where it starts in the, in the nineties. But it real quickly shifts to this inward looking intellectual looking really towards philosophy, postmodern philosophy, missional theology. They start asking these deeper questions that go beyond just the surface, the exterior of ministry. And that then that theological shift that happens because of that then pushes them back out into the world by asking questions around social ethics and politics. And there's a very like chronological flow to this. I mean, you can track this from the 90s, which was ministry and worship styles, to the early 2000s, which is theology and philosophy, to around 2005, the conversation starts to shift towards social ethics and and politics. And so it's really fascinating. It's, It's this outward, inward, outward progression, and that shift to the inward and then uh, to theology and then to social ethics is what was a step too far for mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. We started asking, it's okay to ask questions in evangelicalism, but there's only a range of acceptable answers that you're allowed to land on. And, and people started landing outside of that range. Now, some of you have never heard of a labyrinth before, but... A lot more of you know what one is today because of the emerging church movement. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I not trip. I not only bought a didgeridoo for my youth group, but I also uh, bought a labyrinth for my youth group uh, back in the day. I have Zelda to thank for knowing what a labyrinth is. Uh, Well, you, you're a little spiritual link. For those that don't know, that kind of walking prayer of walking in in a path contemplatively, that whole period of the labyrinth is where you're focusing on releasing and getting to a place that you can open up and attend to something new, right? And when you think of what we've been describing of the way this movement came to coalesce and get to a point where it has definition, I mean, we've heard so much of that story. And in the middle, is a place where one opens up to receive, to receive something new. And this transition of drawing more boundaries uh, and more definition of what, it, of what the movement's going to be and how it's going to open itself up and engage the larger, uh, larger culture and the larger church is here. And, and as, as the story moves on, as you walk out and into the world again, right, having received and opened yourself up, uh, you, you go into a world anew, even though you're exiting the very path you began on when you walk in a labyrinth. And I just found that image from Mike really compelling. And one of the places that people got off the walk of sorts is when that experience of receiving that, that it was, that it was more than just the different aesthetics. It was a demand for theological reflection about what we do, why we do it, what we confess, how we confess it. That openness to doing it in a different way, recognizing that we're going through a paradigm shift and not just a kind of modal update to ministry. That is really at the heart of the emerging church movement. We're going to shift a little bit our tone in the next few episodes because we've been going very chronologically through the story, but now we're going to kind of stop the chronological storytelling and do some more thematic episodes. And the next one in two weeks is on Phyllis Tickle because she had this incredible influence and impact on those of us who knew her personally, but also on the movement as a whole. And and then we're going to talk about some of the ideas, the ideas that were beautiful and lovely, and also the ideas that got us attacked. Our storytelling is going to shift a little bit as we now kind of go through these thematic episodes and deal with bigger issues. But let's give the last word for this episode to Lily Lewin, who arranged those prayer stations at the old Emergent YS conventions. She was such an important part and continues to do that very kind of work. But let's hear her final reflections on the Emergent Convention. I felt a real openness to be creative. There was a welcoming of the arts, not 
and it wasn't there was music but it wasn't just music and so there was an embrace of photography and there was an embrace of poetry and spoken I mean I think probably the first time I ever heard anyone be a spoken word artist was at the first emergent I mean I never that wasn't a thing that was ever happening in the churches I was a part of let's try something different let's do all the multi-sensory breads for for you know from different places to have communion with um let's have communion with everybody let's don't and it can't doesn't have to be perfect let's have art on the tables and let people play that experimental and experiential thing was what i believed strongly and i still do is that what we need to be more we're about participation and there was a lot of participation I have great memories of Emergent because of the friendships I made and because of honoring my gifts as an artist. And uh, as a woman in ministry, I felt honored and appreciated. Emerged is a homebrewed Christianity production. Trip Fuller and Tony Jones are your hosts. Production, mixing, and sound design by Josh Gilbert. Media and marketing by David Trotter. The music you're hearing is from the Cobalt Season, thanks to Ryan Sharp. Other music used is from Solomon's Porch, compliments of Ben Johnson. Thanks to all the Emerged members who make this show possible. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time. Listening to Emerged, a crowdfunded podcast, you can help make this possible, get ad-free episodes and two bonus episodes on our off weeks by going to EmergePodcast.com. And guess what? You could be a producer like our friends at the Open Table Network and Karen Sloan. Don't make them lonely. Don't make them lonely.